0: it's a pleasure to be with you all again I wonder if you turn to the book of Job I want to pick up the studies we've been doing in this book uh, and we'll pick up the narrative or well, the exchanges at uh, chapter 8 Job chapter 8 <clears throat> this is the first speech of Job's uh, friend Bildad, uh, to which Job will respond momentarily hear the word of the Lord how long will you say the? Uh, sorry. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a great wind. Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead, plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing. For our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? While yet in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. His confidence is severed, and his trust is a spider's web. He leans against his house, but it does not stand. He lays hold of it, but it does not endure. He is a lush plant before the sun, and his shoots spread over his garden. His roots entwine the stone heap. He looks upon a house of stones. If he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I have never seen you. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the soil others will spring. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter, and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. Let's pray. O Lord God, and loving Heavenly Father, as we come uh, to study and reflect upon your word this evening, we would acknowledge before you that we are finite, that our minds are too small to grasp the vastness of your being and the depth and profundity of your ways. Even more so, Lord, our minds are darkened by sin and rebellion. And so, Lord, we pray to you, to the God who is light in himself, that you would shine into our hearts and minds, that we might behold great things in your word and be led from your word to the throne of grace, where we might gaze upon you by faith even now in anticipation, of that day when we one day graze upon you by sight. For we pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. When I started the series of Job, I, I said really there's no easy way to approach Job and there's no right or wrong way to approach Job. And I think to go through Job verse by verse or uh, chapter by chapter runs the risk of getting bogged down in the in the detail. So the strategy I've chosen myself is to deal with, with sort of chunks of the text, to deal with particular moments or particular exchanges. So I want to look tonight at this first exchange with Bildad, the second of Job's friends who speaks. And I'm going to go beyond uh, chapter 8 and reflect a little on Job's response in chapters 9 and 10 as well. So the story so far, it's been a few weeks since we looked at Job. The story so far is that uh, uh, Job is this righteous man in the land of oz We don't know much about him or about the land in which he lived. Uh, and uh, he's now subject of a, of a contest uh, to which he has no insight at all at this point. Uh, Satan has gone before God and uh, God has pointed to Job and indicated that Job is a a righteous man who worships him and Satan has raised the obvious challenge and the challenge is this. Of course, uh, Job is a prosperous man. He enjoys a a good family life. He enjoys success in business, respect in his community. Uh, Of course he worships you. You've blessed him outwardly. And so the Lord has first allowed Satan to go and take from Job, we might say, his his external prosperity and comfort. Most terribly sweeping away, taking away his children. And then in a second round with Satan, the Lord has allowed Satan to go and strike Job's person with the one restriction that Job uh, must be left alive. Satan can effectively do what he wishes to Job, but he must not take his life. And in the aftermath of this, uh, four friends, we've only heard of three of them so far, have gone to see Job, and they've sat with him in silence for seven days. And then Job has engaged in this lamentation that has provoked a response. Provoked a response. First of all, from Job's friend Eliphaz, and now from Job's friend, build out. And one of the things we'll notice as we look at each of the responses uh, is, uh, well, there's two things really. One, each of the responses of the first three comforters of Job will all ultimately end in the same kind of wrong place. There are differences between them, but they sort of end up in the same place. But we'll also notice that what makes their arguments in many ways so compelling is they're almost right. They have a a large portion of what we might say the truth about them. Their doctrine of God, their understanding of God is in large part correct. And that what makes their approach to Job, I would say, so compelling but also so deadly. It's precisely because it's so close to the truth That we need to pay special attention to what's being said. So we come now to this man, Bildad. And you can see that Bildad, like Eliphaz, is frustrated with Job's, what he perceives as Job's attempt to justify himself. And Bildad's response is to emphasize the transcendent justice of God. If we were to summarize Bildad's position, it's this. Remember, Eliphaz. Eliphaz's view was God is transcendently sovereign. Transcendently sovereign. And you can't answer back to him. Bildad's case will be, God is transcendently righteous. And therefore, Job cannot answer back to him. The burden of Bildad's argument is this. Job, God is transcendently righteous. You need to shut up. And first of all, acknowledge... That you have sinned. You can see immediately there, if you're familiar with the Bible's teaching about God, of course, that build adds on to something. God is transcendently righteous. And Job, as a son of Adam, of course, he is a sinner. He's described as a righteous man in the text. But as I discussed in the, uh, in the first sermon, I said righteous there is being used in the way that we might say that somebody in our church was a godly person. We're not saying they're perfect but we're saying that they are an outstanding member of the community. They are outwardly that which they should be. It's basically, of course, though, the same dynamic that we noticed with Eliphaz. Essentially, what Bildad is saying is, you get what you deserve. You get what you deserve. Job, your suffering is the result of something That you have done. And Bilal even turns the knife a bit on this. uh, If you notice. Verse 4. If your children have sinned against him. He has delivered them into the hands of their transgressions. That's the kind of statement, uh, I remember I said uh, a couple of sermons ago, that the one thing that the comforters get right is they keep their mouths shut. It's the silence. That's. It's as soon as they start speaking that things go wrong. I woke up just a week ago Thursday uh, to a text from a friend informing me that a mutual friend of ours, uh, his son, had been killed in a horrific one-car accident out in Montana. And of course, I immediately got in touch uh, with the bereaved friend in order to express my sympathy and to assure him of my prayers. One thing I did not do was say, your son must have deserved it. His son was a sinner like the rest of us. But how callous and unbelievable would it have been to say to somebody just bereaved, well, it's a it's a kind of mechanistic process here whereby the fact that your son has been taken from you so terribly and so dramatically, must indicate that he did something terribly wrong. This kind of theology is wrong and utterly callous. It's not much better, of course, what Eliphaz says when Eliphaz expresses the transcendence and the mystery of God. Eliphaz's spin is sort of, you know, the death of your children. Well, it's the will of God. It may be true, but it's a very callous way to present it. And one of the things as we get towards the end of the the book, I'm going to argue is that one of the things that's missing from all of Job's comforters, including Elihu, the man who gets more right than anybody else, is there is no human sympathy for this man in his suffering as he sits there in his agony. The theology is wrong and callous, but of course we might say it's not totally wrong. When you look at the Old Testament, of course, there are plenty of promises attached to God's covenant to his people, whereby obedience will be met with blessing. Ten Commandments talk about living long in the land. Do these things and you will live long in the land. There does seem in the Old Testament to be some sort of connection between outward covenant, obedience and, and blessing. What's interesting, of course, is... Well, that's what it says, but when you you look at the reality of Israel, you look at the reality of Old Testament saints, they rarely enjoyed such. And certainly Israel was never the most powerful nation. There is that moment in the reign of Solomon when the, the wealth and power of Israel reaches the ears of the Queen of Sheba and she comes to see it. But other than that, the Old Testament gives no impression that Israel is a major player in the ancient world. And I think that's a reminder that we need to remember, even in the Old Testament, the supreme blessings of the Old Covenant were not the outward blessings. They were the blessings to be found from Israel's close communion and proximity to the Lord. Being described, for example, as God's firstborn. That special relationship. Israel may not be the most powerful nation, but she is the dearest nation to the Lord. Having God lead his people through the desert. Think about that. They're a wandering bunch of wandering nomads. Nothing compared to the power of Egypt at that point. And yet, unlike Egypt, they have God himself leading them through the wilderness. And then think of the ark. Think of the ark, and later the ark as it's placed into the temple. It's interesting, isn't it, in Psalm 73, when the psalmist is lamenting that, you know, all around me I see the young and the good dying in their early years, and the wicked seem to live to a grand old age and die peacefully. Uh, And the the psalmist says, "It, it just didn't make any sense to me until I went to the sanctuary. Until I went, if you like, to the place where the Ark of the Covenant is placed. Until I went and realized in the context of the Covenant that all of this stuff made sense. But you don't have to be in the Old Testament, of course, to find that your thinking defaults to the sort of thinking that Bildad has here. We all tend to think, when something bad happens to us, what have I done to deserve this? And sometimes when we see somebody suffering terribly, you know, the question arises in our mind, well, have, they, you know, have they done something? Has something happened that has led to this terrible crisis? So the first thing, I think, to draw from this passage, the first thing we can learn by way of the negative, if you like, from Bildad, is this. We need to reorient our thinking to avoid Bildad's kind of logic. We need to reorient our thinking about blessings. Even in the Old Testament, I think, blessings lie with the close presence and care of God rather than with outward comfort and prosperity. And we find that, if anything, sort of intensified, don't we, in the New Testament. When Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about his ministry, Ministry that's being knocked by the super-apostles and by a few troublemakers in Corinth because of the suffering and the weakness he endures. And Paul argues there that my suffering and weakness, well, he sort of says, he doesn't say that just because you suffer you must be godly, but he does say the suffering and weakness of my ministry is precisely a function of the cross. Precisely a function of the way God blesses me. Through the contradiction of my outward circumstances. So that's the first thing to notice about Bildad. Bildad's callous theology applied across the board, even to Job's children, and how flawed and problematic it is. Secondly, another thing I think that Bildad sort of gets right, but is really wrong at the end of the day, uh, notice uh, verse 8. For inquire, please, of bygone ages and consider what the fathers have searched out. It's interesting that both Eliphaz and Bildad uh, build their arguments on what we might call sort of rhetorical strategies. They pull tricks in order to give authority to what they're saying. If you remember with Eliphaz, he says, you know, I, I had this spirit come to me in the night and tell me this stuff. It's as if, you know, God came and directly whispered in my ear, well, I'm telling you now, Job. It's hard when somebody says, you know, well, God told me to do this. It's, uh, generally speaking, God didn't tell them to do that, but it's hard to argue against. Well, dare I say it, Bildad sort of comes up with the, the Orthodox Presbyterian version of that. And, you know, this is the way it's always been done. This is time-hallowed wisdom that we should not touch. And we laugh at that. But there's a sense in which you know, we live in an anti-historical age. We live in an age that tends to dismiss history, tends to dismiss the past as being inferior or ignorant or mediocre in some way. And perhaps, you know, build adds on to something here. Uh, the wisdom of our fathers is not discredited merely by the fact that they came before us. So again, Bildad is sort of touching on something important here. We might say that his words on the surface potentially contain much wisdom. We need to beware of thinking that the latest thing is the greatest thing. We need to beware of the power of consumerism, the power of those endless myths of progress where the past is always inferior to the present, which is always inferior to what's just around the corner. Christianity itself is rooted in history. Uh, Pastor Pugliati does not reinvent the gospel. At least I hope he doesn't. Every Sunday when he gets in the pulpit, Pastor Pugliati builds on the wisdom of generations to project, to preach the time-honored gospel week By week. But here it's just a rhetorical ploy. It's like Yadiphas' appeal to special vision. And in context, I would say, he adds being patronizing to his other weaknesses. We are but of yesterday and know nothing, for our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? kind of patting Job on the head, I think, at that point. And then he reinforces it with these three parables, verses 11 to 19. The papyrus, he points to this reed, the papyrus needs water to grow. It can look healthy, even flower, but it soon dies. Job is saying, you're like an unwatered papyrus. You looked healthy for a while, but there was something wrong there. And now you've crumbled and shrunk. The spider's web. Job, you're leaning on your own strength, like somebody might lean against the spider's web. To trust in your own righteousness at this point is a deeply flawed strategy, he said, which will lead you to nothing but trouble and suffering. And then he says, And Job, you're of no account anyway. Think of the gourd. The gourd grows, and it might look beautiful for a while, but nobody misses it when it's gone. Others spring up. Job, you are as nothing. Bildad is saying, Job, you're a sinner. You're as nothing before God. God does not care. And therefore, all of this suffering that has come your way is because you deserve it. Of course, think of the impact of this on Job. Uh, we, as the readers, we know what's going on. We've had that first chapter or two where we get the, the snapshot of the heavenly courtroom. We know that this is nonsense. Job, in his agony, doesn't have the privilege of that sight. And then, finally, Bildat ends with an utterly unconvincing word of encouragement. Verses twenty to twenty two. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. Repent and turn to God, Job, and everything will be okay. Profoundly unconvincing. Job, of course, has lost all of his children. Job has lost all of his children the end, he'll get children back, of course, but he won't get the original children back. Anybody who's a parent knows that you know, children are not, I suppose, what we call a fungible commodity. It's not, well, if you've got a child and you lose a child, you can always have another one just to replace them. Every child is unique. Every face is unique. Every relationship between a parent and a child is unique. I could hardly say to my friend the other week, well, don't worry, you could have another child be a ridiculous thing to say. Ridiculous thing to say. Utterly callous thing to say. Build out. So near. So near to the truth. Wants to honor history. It's got this doctrine of God as transcendently righteous. And yet so utterly and hopelessly wrong on every single point where it actually counts in dealing with Job. And that leads to Job's response. I won't read the text to you. You can read them for yourselves later. But how does Job respond? Well, first of all, Job asks uh, in chapter 9, verse 2, Truly I know that it's so, but how can a man be right before God? Here is the key question. In what context, Job is asking, could I vindicate myself before God? I don't think at this point that Job is you know, acknowledging the, the logic of Bildad's argument. I don't think Job is saying, yes, you're right, I've sinned, this has all come on me because I've sinned. I think what Job is doing is acknowledging that he's puny before God. Yes, Bildad, you're right that God is transcendent. It's not an acknowledgement, if you like, of his sin at this point. It's an acknowledgement of his tininess before God. If you think about it, we all know analogies uh, in this in our own lives. Uh, uh, I got a very good academic friend, and uh, uh, we used to do work work together on on aspects of the seventeenth century. The, that the details are irrelevant, but one of the things is that. This man knows more about the 17th century than anybody else I know. And I always knew that if we engaged in discussion, he could be wrong. And I would never be able to demonstrate it. Because he just knew more than me. And in fact, on occasion, he would write spoof articles on fictional 17th century characters. Nobody ever challenged him because he was renowned as the authority. It was a joke to him, but he, he loved to show everybody, if you like, that, yeah, I'm so far ahead of the rest of you. you. You can't touch me. I think that's what Job's saying here. Job knows that God is transcendent. He goes on in the following verses. Verse 4, he talks about God as supremely wise. In verses 5 to 10, he talks about God as incomprehensibly powerful. In verse 11 he talks about God as invisible. In verse 12 he talks about God as unaccountable, as one who cannot be called to account by anybody else. And in verse 13 in verse 13 he shows that God is unrestrainable. verse 13, God will not turn back his anger beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. Rahab there is poetic reference to sea creatures. He's saying, even the monsters of the sea are in the palm of God's hand. And that leads Job then to do something very interesting. He calls out to God because he needs an advocate, a mediator, and there is no such one. Look at verses 30 to 32 of chapter 9. If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit and my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand upon us both. Job cries out for a mediator. At this point perhaps I don't know some of the young young people here you've been in that situation in trouble with your mum and dad or you're in trouble with a teacher at school and the thing you want more than anything else is somebody who will stand in the gap for you represent you to that person who's hostile towards you and that's what job is like here he feels very tiny in the face of a mysterious unrestrainable God, and he longs for someone to come who will act as a mediator, act on his behalf. What Job has yet to grasp, of course, is that God himself will establish a mediator and an advocate. If you read these passages in Job, they're some of the most beautiful passages on the doctrine of God you'll find anywhere in the Bible. I teach a course on the doctrine of God at Grove City College, and we take chunks out of the book of Job at points to look at the poetic way the greatness of God is expressed. God is all that Job has described here. But he's also condescended to reveal himself to human beings. God is the God of the covenant. And he binds himself to what he's revealed himself to be, to be the God he has promised. And Job, of course, has some knowledge of this. Because we know at the start, we're given that interesting detail, that Job would offer sacrifices on behalf of his children in case you know, they'd sinned at these parties they went to. That's interesting. It would seem to indicate that Job has some grasp of God's covenantal relationship to his people. Of course, Job is making clear here that no mere man can be such an advocate. What Job is pointing to is the fact that only God himself can be that advocate. And that, of course, is what will come in the New Testament. Hear the words of the Shorter Catechism. What offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? Christ as our Redeemer executes the office of prophet, of priest and of king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. And then goes on in subsequent uh, questions to look at how God in Christ does each of those things, how he stands between God and man and mediates on his behalf. Scripture, of course expresses that with even deeper and more moving insight. Hebrews 4.14 Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We might translate what Job is crying out here is, no creature is great enough to stand before God. And yet I need a creature to stand before God for me, to plead my case at this point. Job does not know. But that solution has already been written. God himself will become human. God himself will take flesh. God himself will be the mediator between God and man. And as we look at Job here then, we might say, well, it's it's all very interesting for Job, but how does that apply to me? Well, we'll all suffer and we will all one day stand at the bar of God's judgment. I preached in covenant this morning and I quoted that passage that it is appointed for man once to die and then to face judgment. We will all stand in the terrifying presence of God at some point and then Job's question will be our most pressing question. Who will be our advocate? Job. What does Job get right here? Job knows he's not up to the task. Job can't advocate for himself because God is, in a sense, everything that Eliphaz and Bildad have said he is. He's transcendent and righteous. And Job agrees with them on that point and therefore knows he cannot stand and make his own case before him. Are you confident that you will be able to make your own case before God in such circumstances? Hebrews points to the fact that only Christ can do that. Neither Mary nor the Saints nor any human being can claim that Hebrews uh, can claim that role. only Hebrews 4:14 points us to Jesus. Katrina and I had the pleasure of being in a conference over the summer. It was a Roman Catholic conference. We were some of the only Protestants there. And some lovely conversations. And on the last day as I was leaving, a former member of the Swiss Guard grabbed me. And he said, give me one word that explains why you're a Protestant and not a Catholic. And I said, I said well, there are many words. And he said, no, I want one. Give me one word. And I thought for a second. And I said, "Mary." Much as I think it's appropriate that Protestants have a high view of Mary as a human mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, Mary can't advocate for us on the Day of Judgment. Only Jesus can do that. If you're not a Christian, of course, there is good news. You might say, well, I don't believe in Jesus. What is the good news? Well, the the good news is it doesn't have to be that way. You don't ultimately have to face God's tribunal by yourself. But you do need to turn and place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and call on Him to be an advocate for you. If you're a Christian, of course, you need to rejoice in your mediator and give thanks to God that He has set Him forth as your advocate. And finally, I would say, if you're suffering as a Christian today, You need to remind yourself that God has gone before. Christ has been resurrected. There is nothing, not even death itself, which can touch you in any final way. And that's not to make the mistake of Job's comforters and belittle the suffering and the agony that you may be going through, which is probably very, very real and very overpowering. But it is to say that that suffering and agony is not the final word. For Christ is resurrected. And I close with the words of the great Scottish theologian, Peter Taylor Forsyth, who said this when looking at the agony and suffering of this world. He said this, to be the slave of Christ is to be the master of every faith. Praise God for his gospel. Let's pray. O Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have set forth in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, a perfect mediator who is able to sympathize with us and yet is also God manifest in the flesh and lives even now to advocate for us at your right hand. We pray, O Lord, that you would teach us day by day to depend more and more upon him so that that final day when we stand before the throne of your judgment, You will not look upon us as we are in ourselves, but you will look upon us as we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we pray these things in his name. Amen.